Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Well, since we last recorded, I think I've spent uh, over two-thirds of the time in between uh, out, out in the wilderness, completely disconnected from yeah. the world. So what's been happening? All sorts of fun stuff going on around the shop. Ended up spending a big chunk of that time, actually, when you were gone, building a crate. It's going to go and ship off uh, some some equipment to uh, to a guy in the states that I sold some uh, some machines to. So, yeah, building building a large crate that was uh, a large part of that time. Hmm. I should have hewn some lumber for you. <laughs> you know, lumber lumber is frustrating these days with the the astronomical prices of lumber and the really low quality of it. it was, hmm. It's crazy. So, yeah, it probably would have been better quality than uh, than what I bought from Home Depot. <laughs> Although I wouldn't have had time to dry it between now and then. You know what? That wouldn't have mattered. It would have still been, <laughs> it probably would have been drier than some of the stuff that I got. Uh, it was ridiculous. Yeah, low quality lumber these days is frustrating. Yeah, I just picked up 12 sheets of, of spruce plywood, a quarter inch, or quarter inch, pff, half inch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it got a little wet on the way home, but it yeah. seems, seems good otherwise. Yeah, plywood's usually not too bad just because of the, the structure of it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you yeah, know, this was dimensional lumber and so it's miserable uh, at least they're two by sixes so they they tend to use better quality wood for that but still not fun and nice and warp get it all, all yeah. straight for your crate yep yeah exactly so yep well that uh, the crate is pretty bomb proof and should uh, should make it down to the the uh the states in one piece so you're gonna be sad to see this this piece of equipment go uh, you know, honestly, it's an engine that I, a straight line engine that I sold, and I, I haven't actually used it for a while. I did have it set up for doing pens, uh, so that's all that it was. It was set up to do for years. It was just doing, uh, just doing pens. But I'm not doing enough pens uh, at this point to justify having a an engine like that sitting around for, um, you know, set up only to do it. So I will. Uh, I'm happy to to let it go to somebody else. I do have a, another more capable engine around that I can use for doing that anyway. So. It's not as if I'm losing the capability of uh, engine turning pens. And I take it you've kept the fixture that you built to be able to turn the pens? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that was nice that um, I converted an 8-millimeter watch lathe to a pen chuck for my straight-line engine. Uh, David Lindo helped me do that years ago, and it has been an incredibly useful device. I can either use a ratchet mechanism on it to have a sort of regulated distance between... um, uh, turns, or it also has a worm drive on it, and I can reliably do sort of 4,800 divisions around a cylinder using the worm drive if I want to. So the the combination of them makes it uh, sort of nice to be able to, you know, be able to do whatever I want on a on a piece, and I can um, I can reproduce exactly what I did, or I can go back and pick up a a cut if I need to, or whatever, just because I've got the flexibility with that uh, that thing to do it. Yes. Very clever, very ingenious. The first time I saw that, yeah, I was quite impressed with what you had done there. And it's also nice because the, you know, being a lathe the way that it is, I've got access to the eight millimeter collet. So I've actually just made a bunch of mandrels that use the eight millimeter collet back end to fit in there. And then I've also got a tailstock, and the tailstock has a five sixteenths hole through it, so I can do, you know, put precision rod through there and make custom holders for the tailstock. So that I can uh, I can support the back end of the pen or whatever else it is that I'm turning. So it's quite nice. I've actually thought about making a newer one using um, using a slightly larger uh, lathe headstock, probably something off of a tag, mostly so that I can get more center height between the center of the lathe and the bed, and then also be able to extend the length of the bed a little bit so that I can put longer items in there. 
Uh, there have been a few times when um, I've had requests from people to do engine turning work on things that were just too long to be able to put on that on that particular uh, setup. So it would be nice to be able to set something up with uh, with a little bit more flexibility. Did you eventually let the, the fine people of Instagram know that it was not a, a watch box? <laughs> no, I never did, actually. I, for those who don't know, don't follow me on Instagram. I, I did post on Instagram that I was going to use that crate as my uh, shipping material, my packaging material for my watches. I think most people figured out that I was joking about it, but I think a few people may have thought that I was actually going to do that. <laughs> yeah, it turned out uh, in my mentions there on Twitter, I missed a, a back and forth with Dr. Struthers about some chiming watches as well while I was away. So it's uh, too too bad I missed out on on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've been inspired recently by uh, another little project she's been working on with uh, one of her, her polishing aids. Well, that was actually something that they built. I think Craig and and Rebecca built that years ago. It was one of their first sort of tools for for making um, making their own watches. They're working on their two four eight project, and this is for uh, polishing screws, polishing the heads of screws, specifically for doing that black polish on the um, the screw faces when you're um when you're finished machining them and uh, it's nice because it uses a an eight millimeter collet to be able to hold the screw in place and then you can um, you can sit there and use whatever uh, level of abrasive is appropriate up to um, getting it to a black polish so it's a nice little setup i've seen a bunch of people doing different things uh different setups in lathes you know putting something in the tailstock to be able to put a you know let's say a, a tin lap in the in the tailstock or uh, micro mesh or whatever you know you happen to use for getting that black polish, and then you can turn the um, the screw in the lathe while you're working on it. I've seen a couple of different setups like this. Henrik Capella at KHWCC, uh, he teaches making a similar setup to the one that uh, Craig and Rebecca made, and uh, it uses again a collet to be able to uh, to do it. Although I like um, I like Henrik's a little bit more just because it has the ability to adjust the height of the feet. So you can get that face perfectly perpendicular to the line, the axis of the uh, of the screw. Uh, now, it's probably more useful if you're working on a large number of different types of screws, so different thicknesses, different sizes, and things like that. Craig and Rebecca's is probably fine if you're working on screws that you know all of the sizes of because they're all the same, you know, the head is all the same thickness. So it's probably fine for that. And in their case, that's what they're doing. So that probably works out okay for them. But I think uh, I'm I'm thinking about making something that's got a little bit more adjustment capability in it. Yeah, the setup uh, for Craig and Rebecca's is, I would say, more attuned to the volume as yeah. compared to the the KHWCC one. And uh, I would say with both of them, like the KHWCC one more than that, um, you do have to be very mindful of the fact that you are truly parallel because you could end up with a screw head that that's, uh, ends up sort of cockeyed uh, and is not perfectly... Uh, parallel between the the top of the screw head and the bottom of the screw head, uh, which was one of the nice things about the the lathe style ones or mm-hmm. like that. The Roller Fix uh, was I think was a company that that made uh, a setup for polishing screw heads back in the day with okay. bell metals and, and tin and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of advantages to the way that um, the way that Rebecca's is set up, and as you say, being able to make a perfectly parallel face on there uh, that that's a huge part of it. But it does certainly benefit from having something that you're, you know, you know sort of what those sizes are or you've got a pretty good idea or you can even, you know, put it in, drop it down so that it's flat on the plate and then be able to tighten it so that it's it's right there. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of advantages of that. Uh, and if you haven't looked at the photo of it yet, it's got three stable feet, um, probably carbide, 
uh, and they don't move at all. They're all perfectly parallel, uh, or they're they're all exactly the same length, so that they stay in the same spot. And that that certainly is a nice a nice setup. I think if I were going to do it, I would I might make it so that the collet could be moved up and down a little bit. Uh, I so believe that, that is how this setup is. Uh, the, from mm-hmm. the the technical drawing you you showed me there quickly, uh, uh, my memory could be off. Yeah, but uh, I, I think the the set screw on the side there was to allow you to to yeah, raise and lower the the collet up and down, and then the collet itself was was fixed or pulled tight uh, by a nut on the back of it. There's like a sleeve, and then the collet, mm. and then the nut, right, right, and then right, there's right, a right. a a set screw on the side that you can right. raise yeah. and lower that. Yeah, way. so you do get some some adjustability from that. I, I like the idea of being able to do a screw adjustment for height mm-hmm. so that you get, you know, controlled height adjustments. And I, I like that a little bit more. So I might uh, I might play around with something like that. The other thing that I may do is I may also make a fixture for my, my Glendo AccuFinish polishing setup. Mm-hmm. That's what I use for uh, grinding and polishing all of my cutting tools. So if I'm, if I'm uh, polishing up a, a graver for hand engraving or for use in my straight line engine or even my lathe tools. I use that Glendo AccuFinish for that. And I'm regularly polishing stuff down to quarter micron, which is black polishes, you know, as far as any of this stuff is concerned. So uh, that, you know, that kind of a setup or some kind of a setup that will work with my Glendo AccuFinish would be nice because then I get the advantages of having a power hone, something that I can, you know, that I'm not sitting there and constantly rubbing it back and forth by hand. But then, you know, which is one of the advantages of the lathe, you don't have to sit there rubbing it back and forth by hand. But then I also have the ability to very easily change out the the different abrasives that are on there. Everything from micro mesh to, you know, as I said, to different diamond laps and, and different ceramic laps as well, which is nice because then I can get uh, different diamond pastes on there and stuff. Well, maybe that'll be a, another project for you to, to repurpose an, an old 8mm lathe for. <laughs> Could be. I think if I'm going to start working with a lathe for that sort of thing, I'd probably just make a tailstock attachment for my Derbyshire and just put laps on, on mm-hmm. the Derbyshire. Yeah. The inconvenient thing there is that I've already got a bunch of laps that are really nice for this sort of thing, mm-hmm. but they're all five or six inches in diameter, which would not really be appropriate, even mounted on the, the tailstock of the Derbyshire to, uh, you know, to work. Uh, they're just too large for it. So I'd have to decide what I'm, you know, sort of what the best course of action is there. Well, and using abrasives in and around your, your lay that you're also attempting to do precision <laughs> turning on, uh, I would not advise. You know, it would, by the time you're working on a screw head and black polishing it, you're really only working with very, very fine diamond abrasives. So uh, it's probably not going to be too significant a problem. Uh, you know, you're going to be like you're, you're beyond the level of lapping paste, you know, in a lot of cases. So. I'm not sure how much of a problem it would be. Uh, also, in a lot of cases, it's um, electrostatically charged diamond on the plates, so it's not coming off. Like it's not like a a breakaway abrasive, something like a silicon carbide or something like that. So it's probably not a huge issue at that point. Yeah, as, as long as you don't end up with a, a slurry slowly migrating no, 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 into no. the into the headstock there, yeah. mess up your bearings over time, yeah. even though it's a very fine polishing paste and anything. Like, the bearings are going to wear regardless. I think just normal use of those bearings is going to be worse on them than the, than the uh, you know, the shorter period of time that I would be potentially polishing on it. And on your your other point there, too, about the, the tripods and, and being careful of how you're, you're moving it back and forth, um, 
Yeah, I certainly hope it is something like a, a carbide there on, on the one that the, the Struthers mm-hmm. made. Because if you're not careful, your body's likely going to be moving in a, a pretty rhythmic manner as you're doing this. And you more than likely will zone out here and there. And uh, I think over time, those feet would be want to, to wear differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something you'd want to be careful of there with that, where it's not so much a tripod setup, where it's like the KHWCC one, where you're component being polished is, is one of the feet of the tripod. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a tripod setup with an, an additional piece put down. So you've got uh, a quadruped there. So it, it's not yeah. going to necessarily stay as level as you, you like or guarantee uh, that it would stay that level. Same goes for that, that set screw too. Um, the fact that it's not being pulled in concentrically the way uh, it is with a, a collet, the way it's fixed. It's probably going to give you a, a slight angle. It's likely not going to be perceptible. It's, I'm sure, I'm positive, this, this setup is perfectly fine for, for what they're doing. Mm. Uh, but there's certainly margins of, of error in there uh, that you should be mindful of as you're, you're doing the polishing work. But I'm interested to see uh, what you end up coming up with. I, I use a, a very ancient uh, tripod setup that, that I inherited from mm. uh, an English watchmaker. Uh, I tool I use could very well be 100 years old. I have right. no idea. And, and frankly, something like that would work perfectly fine as well for a lot of um, a lot of what's going on. In my case, I'm I'm going to be producing enough screws that I want to make something that's easy for me to, to use and easy for me to adjust and easy for me to produce good quality work without needing to think about things like parallelism between the, the face and the back of the screw, things like that. So it's, uh, and also being able to, to use the abrasives that I'm happy with that I can get good results, that I know that I can get good results with. As I said, I've been polishing carbide now for years to an extremely high polish for my engine turning. So the, it's, you know, it's something I'm used to. And being able to use the same kinds of abrasives for that is, is just convenient, and I know that they work. And CNJ Duray makes some really nice add-ons for lapping mm. horological items mm-hmm. on, on laps, very much like your AccuFinish. Yeah. Um, so looking at what they have for this sort of use case uh, might, be, might be beneficial too. I, I'm certain it, it won't be cheap, whatever <laughs> it is they have to, to offer you, uh, but it'll, it'll do a superb job. Even the laps that, that uh, Glendo AccuFinish put out are not inexpensive. I, I think the, I was looking at replacing a couple of my ceramic laps. I want to say they're asking for a six-inch lap. I think they're asking $300 US for a six-inch lap these days. So it's, it's not cheap regardless of what you're doing with it. I do know a couple of people who've had a lot of success using uh, cast iron laps, and they find that ca- charging cast iron laps with, with diamond paste is, um, is actually really effective as well. Uh, I know a lot of people use tin for theirs, uh, so it just depends on what it is you're looking for and and what you're getting out of it. Yeah. Nickel's another one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought I had purchased a, a set of, of tin laps back in the day, probably six or seven years ago. I, I bought a set of, of watchmaker's laps, like little bench laps, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it turns out they were steel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not ne- not nearly as ideal as, as tin yeah. For achieving a really high polish. But. I do have a couple of pounds of tin sitting downstairs that I bought when I was doing some experimentation with Niello and mm. trying to make a version of Niello with tin. So I, I have enough of it downstairs that I might actually make my own, you know, make a couple of laps for myself for for doing stuff. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll set up something on the Glendo AccuFinish and I'll actually make a tin lap for it so I can I can get that uh, that in, in the mix as well. Just make a lap of your own, yeah. Yep. There you go. 
Got all the tools. Might as well. Mm, it might as well. Yeah. And in the in the finishing front, we uh, talked a little bit about finishing last episode on some of what I'm doing with my bridge finishing, and and we did talk a little bit about the the levels of finishing and and sort of where I think I'm at versus where I would eventually like to be. And based on a, on a couple of bits of feedback that I got, one of the things that I think maybe was lost in my explanation is that you can't just spend more time finishing something and polishing something and expect to get better results. You know, you can't just sit there and continuously polish the same bevel for 30 hours and expect to get better results than you did after two hours of polishing that bevel. It doesn't really work that way. When I talk about the different levels of, of finish and how you're getting better at it, there are more things that are involved than just, you know, than just sitting there and polishing something. It's, in fact, if you do polish something for that long, you're probably going to overpolish it. You're then going to cause problems with the edges being sharp. You're going to have, you know, round over issues. You're going to have, you know, bring in potential other problems with, you know, maybe a bit of abrasive or something, something coarser than what you're working with to, you know, to actually get in place. So there, there is a little bit more to it than just spending raw hours on it. Like when Philippe Dupour talks about spending, I don't know, he's spending, talking about what, a month or two on, a, on finishing the bridges and his watches. The reason that he's spending that time is not because he's sitting there for 10 hours, just polishing a single bevel, right? He's, there are other decisions that are going into that. There's other, uh, other things that are happening there that'll that allow him to get to the the final level that he's looking at the way that he's shaping those those bevels and things like that and it's not just about you know taking that final polish and just saying oh well hey this is the finest polish that i have i'm just going to keep polishing on this for 10 hours and that will get the finish that i want if that was the case then well all of us could just sit there and polish for that level of time but there's there's a lot more to go that goes into it than just spending raw hours with a, you know, with a stick or whatever it is that you've got your polishing compound on and just rubbing back and forth. Uh, it it's not quite as simple as that. And part of the reason too that it becomes more time consuming as you go along is because it requires a lot more focus and intention behind every single action that you're you're taking. You can't just sit there and quickly move a piece of wood back and forth or a small lap back and forth. Um, you do have to be very careful, very cognizant mm -hmm. of what you're doing, what's happening. Um, the feedback that you're going to get audibly from the material as you're working it is also going to, to yeah. say a lot. And I know that some of the, the top finishers at FB Jeune will actually count strokes once they, they mm. hit a certain level. If they're trying to get a, a part to be balanced or, or very nice and symmetrical between it, two sides mm -hmm. they will literally sit there and and count you know 10 strokes on this side with this amount of pressure 10 sure. strokes on this side with this amount of pressure and it requires that same amount of, of focus that that you need when you're your engine turning mm -hmm. absolutely uh, like we were talking the other the other day about how hungry you feel yeah. after you've been engine turning it's because of the, the <laughs> amount of of calories that your brain is actually drawing from the rest of, of your body mm -hmm. as you're sitting there that intensely focused on, on one thing for such a, a long stretch of time. And, and once you get to a certain level and you start understanding the metals and the materials that you're working with, you also start to have to deal with things like the grain of the metal and how the grain of the metal can change depending on how it was made. 
rubbing the micro mesh paper in one direction on this piece of metal doesn't react the same way as it does on that other piece of metal. And the reason why is because the grain structure is slightly different. And now you have to, but you have to be able to recognize that. You have to be able to see that at the magnification that you're working at. The, the, the longer you're working at that high level of magnification, the more effort it is for your brain visually and just cognitive processing, as you say, to work with. And so you can't work at high, high magnification for super long periods of time like that. And, but those, that's what you need to be able to see things like how the grain structure of the metal is affecting the polish that you're getting on the piece and what's, you know, sort of what's a, uh, uh, a red herring in terms of where there's a problem with it, where there isn't a problem with it. Um, Rich and I were talking a little bit about this a few weeks ago, talking about, about metal finishing. And there are a lot of common mistakes that, that beginners make when it comes to metal finishing. Like one of the first things that most people do is that they don't start off at a coarse enough level of finish when they're doing the initial shaping. And so they spend too long trying to shape a part using too fine of a uh, a tool and they so they then waste a lot of their time doing that if you use the correct level of abrasive to begin with you can very quickly move through you know move from from the basic shaping and then move on to removing the scratches from that and continuing to go into the finer and finer abrasives a lot of beginners just don't they don't do that they they don't start coarse enough and then the other problem that they run into is that they think that uh, they can go back or they can remove the scratches from, let's say, the sandpaper to previous levels before with the finer sandpaper. And they, if they just keep going at it long enough that they'll remove the deeper scratches, which they should have removed on the previous version, you know, the previous level of, of abrasive. But the problem you run, run into there is that often you can't. Often what you're doing is you're just going to round over the deeper scratches with the finer abrasive what you need to do is go back a level take out those scratches properly and then proceed forward a lot of people especially a lot of beginners just don't want to go backwards they think that that if they go backwards they're going to have problems or they're they're just wasting their time but what they don't realize is they're actually going to get a better finish by moving back a step taking out that you know that scratch so in my case i'm going from a 10 cut file to a 10 micron micro abrasive and then i'm going to um i think it's a three micron a one micron and then a 0.3 micron in those those micro mesh papers if if i'm sitting there on the one micron micro mesh and i'm seeing scratches that were left there by the 10 micron micro mesh i'm not going to try and take them out with the one micron i'm actually going to go back to the three take them out properly with the three and then go back to the one because otherwise, I could be spending far too much time doing, you know, trying to remove those 10 micron scratches using a one micron paper. And also, that I may just never get them out. I may end up with all these little, you know, these little rounded over scratches, and that's hugely problematic. So there's a lot of little things like that that you, you start to learn uh, as you get more and more experience with this. So the things that will, will just make the overall level of finish better, uh, things that will speed up your process as well. And this is why, you know, just sitting there for hours on end is, is not necessarily the way to go. And one way to, to help identify whether you've, you've gotten all the scratches out earlier on, uh, this doesn't work as well when you get finer and finer because you do have to respect the grain of, of 
the material is to actually change the the direction in which you're you're passing right. over it. So once you see that all of the the lines you're leaving behind are all going in one direction, then you know that all of the lines that were going in the opposite direction are, are slightly offset from that uh, with the previous mesh that you were working with. That you know that they're all gone, mm-hmm. and then you move on to the next one, and then you change your orientation again. And, and work that oftentimes at the end of a level of abrasive i will actually take the last few passes perpendicular to how i i've been uh polishing up until then because at that point you're going to then see okay are there any of the previous level of abrasive scratches still left in it and then also when you start working on the next level you're working you're immediately working perpendicular to the last couple of passes that you did with the the coarser abrasive. And so it becomes much easier to identify when you've removed those previous um, previous abrasive scratches. So there's, there's little tricks like that. Unfortunately, with some things, especially something as small as the, the bevels that you're using, you know, on glass, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, tough to, yeah. it's tough to do that, especially because if you're moving, uh, let's say, if you're moving perpendicular to the axis of the of the bevel, it becomes very easy to change the angle that that bevel is at all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're moving along that bevel, it's much easier to maintain that exact angle that you're working on. And that sort of thing can be problematic if you're not careful, especially when you're working on the more abrasive stuff. Um, like I would never, I wouldn't really do that with a file, for instance. I, I tend to prefer working with a file so that I'm moving sort of parallel to the length of that, that uh, bevel. And that way, even though it leaves, you know, deep scratches in that, le- in that direction, at least I know that I'm, you know, I'm creating and maintaining that particular edge and angle exactly how I want it. And then when I start dealing with the micro abrasives, then I'm willing to go sort of perpendicular to the to the length of that uh, that bezel. Mm-hmm. And if you focus too long on a single area, say trying to get out a, a deep scratch, you can end up with a, a wavy effect. And absolutely, it, like that's, that can absolutely ruin a, absolutely. a piece. Yeah, it's uh, it is certainly an an art. <laughs> yeah, uh, getting a, a really fine finish on things, and as well, if you're trying to keep really uh, flat surfaces, like the the type of finish you'd see with a lap, you're mm. generally better off with with a lap. Uh, that's why a lot of the anglage that you you see in watch movements is rounded, and mm-hmm. and not this really rigid forty five degree mm-hmm. angle, unless it was done with like a, a diamond cut chamfer like mm-hmm. a, a diamond tool to create that that diamond cut chamfer uh, because to, to achieve that otherwise by hand um so. you're you're bound to end up rounding it in some way just in the motion of, of oh, your I body know. yeah <laughs> yeah that's and that's one of the things i'm fighting with i am actually putting flat surfaces on there i'm not rounding i'm not putting a round curve on those uh on those bevels and it, it certainly does take more work to do that and it it is um you don't have as many places to hide when you're working on a flat surface like that uh, and then some a few other things that uh, for those of you who are interested in getting into doing fine finishing on things, um, a few other things to keep in mind. One, change out your abrasive faster. Most people tend to continue using a file or a piece of sandpaper or whatever far too long. It's loaded up with with um, material from you know what you're removing, and or it's lost its abrasive. A lot of abrasive material is designed to wear away. That's part of how it's working as you're as you're abrading the material. And so you're you're losing that thing that you're trying to get. 
Now, in the case of files, uh, for instance, when I'm working with my jeweler's files uh, at the bench, what I do is I tend to migrate the files to finer and finer finishes. So something that started out as a coarse file, after I've used it for a while, will end up getting moved down the bench to more of a fine file. And then I buy a new file that's coarse. And I, you know, sort of slowly work its way down to the point where it's not really useful and then it gets turned into a knife or something like that. But with a, with things like sandpaper, you know, if you, the average person who uses sandpaper for, let's say, finishing some wood occasionally or maybe sanding some some paint that they've they've been working on, they would be shocked at how quickly I discard sandpaper. It It is a consumable that I go through very quickly, even with the microabrasives where you're not really building up a lot of material on it or you're not removing a lot of the microabrasive that's on it. I get rid of those very, very fast and I'm constantly switching them out. Uh, and then the other thing that people don't do is they don't clean their work in between moving from one abrasive to another. It's absolutely vital. And yeah. especially at this level, if there is even the smallest bit of abrasive or a particle from the, um, you know, from the piece that is left on the work and you go to the next level of abrasive, you have basically invalidated that level of that finer level of abrasive. You need to clean the work before you go any further. In some cases, that means, you know, doing a proper full clean on it. And like when I'm doing the um, the work with, uh, particularly once I go into the polishing compounds, once I move into polishing compounds, because I'm using two different layers in this case, I actually do a full clean on the part from one polishing compound to the next. Because if I don't remove the Luxor polishing compound before I start working with the Rouge, I, I'm wasting my time. The Rouge is never going to do what it needs to do just because there is still some of that Luxor polishing compound there. Coincidentally, in the, the vein of metal having a, a grain structure, uh, the most recent issue of Europe, a star magazine, had a, a number of interviews with different uh, independent watchmakers. And one of those watchmakers was Denis Flagiolet from De Bethune. And uh, one of the key quotes from him that, that stuck out to me when I, when I was reading uh, his profile uh, was that, that he's discovered in time that uh, you work metal like wood because metal is fibers, is the way that, that he framed that. Uh, so he certainly uh, agrees with that, that grain structure. And I would say that uh, most physics professors or physics professionals would also agree with you about the, the, the grain structure inherent within metals. Most people are familiar with the grain and wood and they, it's obvious to them, but once you start getting to a certain level with metals and you start working on metals and at certain levels of precision in particular, you start dealing with the grain structure of metals. You also start dealing with internal stresses in metals and things like that. So you, you, there, these are all things that you have to take into account when when it comes to working with metals. And, and once you want to move past a certain level, uh, you absolutely need to make sure that you... Uh, you take all of those things into account. And it's one of the reasons why people become picky about where they get their metals. Mm -hmm. You don't just buy whatever scrap, you know, you find at the at the local metal dealer and, you know, from the back corner or whatever. I'm willing to pay a premium for certain materials. And that's because I know exactly how it was made. I know exactly what they went through to do it. I know that it's been normalized. I know that, you know, when I when I cut into it, it isn't going to turn into a Pringle chip on me. <laughs> All those things, right? And and those are things that you can't guarantee if you're just buying whatever mystery metal you find at the local scrapyard. 
And one example in the world of, of horology of this being taken to, to the nth extreme uh, would be Rolex with their 904L steel, because they were finding, uh, when they were applying the, the finish to their, their cases and, and their bracelets, that in some of the batches they were getting from their, their supplier, uh, there'd be some, some micro-tearing happening. And it turned out that the, the supplier wasn't using the forge, that they were creating this alloy in exclusively for the 904L steel. They had also done some titanium forging in there, and small atomic bits of titanium residue ended up in the batch of 904L, and it was messing with that final specular finish. Uh, so much so that, that Rolex now has a foundry that it owns and operates that exclusively creates uh, the 904L steel for them, which they now refer to as, as oyster steel. And the same goes with all of their, their gold alloys as well, things like their Everose gold. All of that metallurgy is done in-house at their very own foundries in Switzerland. If you're on Instagram and you're looking to follow some people who are doing high-level finishing work in the watch industry, there's a few people that I highly recommend following. Uh, Philippe Narbel, he's, uh, he's doing some great work on Instagram showing the process of finishing, talking about his process and the tools that he's using, the materials he's using, things like that. Uh, and his company, uh, Manufacturer SA, I think is the, uh, is the Instagram handle. We'll, we'll put links to these in the show notes. Uh, again, they're showing off some great work that they're doing there. And then the other person is Natalie Jean-Louis. Uh, again, she's an experienced watch finisher in the industry, and she's showing some amazing work and is sharing some amazing details about the kind of work she does. So make sure if you're if you're interested in doing and seeing what people are doing at a high level of watch finishing, some excellent people to follow there. Uh, there's three accounts there that we'll uh, we'll link to. Absolutely worth following. Trying to convince me to get get on Instagram, aren't you, John? I'm going to get you on Instagram eventually. <laughs> by hook or by crook, I'll get you on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe one of these days I'll uh, I'll hop on hop on the Instagrams. Oh yeah. That's, uh, yeah, not not quite there yet. Although this this is tempting. I'm, uh, I would say I, I'm going to go and check these guys out, but I know that I'll get I'll get walled by <laughs> by Instagram if I do. Yeah. I'll have to find some random link somewhere that, that links to one of their their posts, and then that that that's all I'll see of them. But uh, in the vein of of social media and, and things being posted, last episode we we said we had at least had some prior art on uh, Konstantin Shaikin mm -hmm. with uh, his Project Minotaur. It turns out his earliest post with a, a photo of his his Minotaur watch uh, was on February 12th, which is, is prior to the date that we did publish that episode with, uh, with the, the cover. However, there there are numerous counts well before February the 12th, 2021, when we, we did discuss yeah. Project Minotaur in <laughs> public. Um, so, so we still have that. Uh, you know our, our dial design which was unique to us uh -huh. um you know and, and we oh, unfortunately wouldn't win the, the prior art on, on that one in, in a court of law oh well but i doubt it will ever come to a head with, with constantine i, I don't and, think uh, i don't think we're going to be competing with him with our one-off watch exactly <laughs> now actually going back a little bit to the finishing stuff because this is this is a little trick that uh you and i spoke about and you had never heard of this and i think it's it's worthwhile sharing because it's it's something that's actually super useful in a bunch of different contexts and not just what I'm doing. I don't know where the first time was that I ran into this. The, the earliest posts I can remember about this are probably from John Saunders 
at NYCCNC. We've spoken a few times in the past about John. Uh, he's been running a great YouTube channel for years. If you want to learn machining and you want to learn CNC machining, it's an excellent place to get started with it. And one of the things that they focus on a lot, because frankly, this is a huge part of the job, is work holding. And how do you safely hold a piece of metal to then machine it in a mill or in a lathe? And this little trick that, that he started showing has, has begun showing up everywhere, uh, everywhere from luthiers to jewelers to machinists. And I've been using it in a, in a number of places now for years, and it, and it is exceptionally helpful. And it involves using super glue and tape. And the, the, way, that, the way that they've been using it is they'll, they're trying to hold a part where they need to be able to get to five of the six sides of the part, and they don't want to hold it in a clamp, or they don't want to hold it in a vise. And so what they do is that they hold a flat sheet of aluminum in the vise, and they put down some painter's tape, and just blue painter's tape that you can pick up at any big box DIY reno store. And then they put another layer of the tape on the underside of the part that they want to hold. They put a little bit of super glue onto the tape, and then they stick the two parts together and they clamp them together for a few minutes until the glue sets. And at that point, you've created a very stable, very solid hold on the workpiece. And it can hold us, it can handle a surprising amount of load uh, against it. It can, it, it has a lot of lateral stability and a lot of lateral hold. It doesn't hold up well if you pry it off. Uh, it pops off very easily when you pry it off. But in terms of side loads on the part, it actually holds remarkably well. And this is super, super useful for very thin parts. So whether you're working on uh, on a thin sheet of metal that you want to be able to to grab and you don't want to deform it. Because one of the problems when you're holding something in a vise is that you can very easily deform the part that you're working on. So this is a great way to be able to hold it in place and be able to actually, you know, keep it flat and keep it stable. I know that in the watch industry, there are a lot of, um, a lot of watch manufacturers that use things like super glue to hold dials onto chucks while they're working on them, whether they're doing engraving work or whether they're doing engine turning or things like that. Uh, or they'll put it onto a plate that they then hold the plate in a chuck. Uh, so there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. But the advantage of this is that it's very, very easy to then pop the part off of the work holding surface afterwards. Uh, so I've actually been using this recently to hold down the bridges uh, that I'm uh, bead blasting with the uh, ruby material that I'm, I'm blasting with. So I'll actually uh, hold the parts down there. And the advantage of this for me is that it, it gives me a good solid work holding surface. But then I don't have to spend hours, you know, dissolving super glue off of the, the part or whatever uh, to get rid of all of that. And, you know, you typically do that in acetone. In this case, it's very easy to just peel the painter's tape off of the back of the, the part and it doesn't leave any residue behind. Very, very simple to work with. The the tape that I've tend to I tend to use on the dials is a masking tape for the powder coating industry, and the the convenience of that it's a plastic tape and it's a more consistent thickness. Uh, I get better you know sort of better consistency there, and therefore it it keeps the dial more level. Like I'm I'm not worried so much about there being deformation 
in it, um, you know, and I'm talking about very, very small amounts, like less than a thousandth of an inch, but that's still enough to show up in my engine turning. So this advantage, the advantage of this masking tape for the powder coating is that you do get a, a more consistent surface. It's flatter and it's nicer to work with. So I'm, I'm really, really happy with the results that I get off of this. Again, holds down more than fine when it comes to the forces that I'm putting on it when I'm engraving, when I'm using it on the straight line engine or whatever. And I'm super, super pleased with it. And then what I can do is I can build a standardized plate that I can put these dials onto and that I can hold in place on the, you know, on my lathe, on my engine, whatever it is that I'm, I'm trying to do. I don't have to worry about having a lot of excess dial material around it to hold on to because that's a big problem. I've seen people use rings that hold down the outside edge of the, the dial material. But the problem there is that you need to have waste material that you then cut away, which, okay, you know, if, if you're working on an inexpensive dial material like brass or whatever, that's not a big deal. Silver, not a big deal. Palladium 500, yeah, it starts to get expensive. You know, gold, platinums, it starts to get really pricey to have a lot of waste material there. So this is a really good way of being able to get that, that stable surface, that nice hold that you want without needing a lot of excess dial material there to hold on to. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't had a, a chance to try this myself yet. I didn't drag a, a mill with me out into the, the Canadian wilderness. <laughs> but uh, I am curious to try this next time I have to say make a, a setting lever or mm -hmm. a, a flat part like that from from a, a watch and see it be useful for you know chronograph hammers and, and things like that as well i've ha have had to make the odd one for vintage pieces for which mm -hmm. components are no longer available and this would be a, a fantastic way to, to work gold the only time i've ever had to use a an eyewash station um <laughs> was i got interrupted while i was heating up a part to release the cyanoacrylate mm. bond uh, so just to, to get the two pieces apart quickly, because it ha it works a little faster than using acetone. Yes, it does. Uh, but you do have to be mindful of, of turning the heat off at just yeah. the right moment. I thought I would be quick enough with this quick request someone had made. Mm. But of course, I got interrupted within an interruption. Uh, within an and by the time I walked back into the room, um, just opening the door was enough for the, the gas that had been sure. let off. That uh, I flicked off, like closed my eyes, flicked off the switch and, and headed for the closest eyewash station as, yeah. as quickly as I could. As that, that was just completely noxious. So I, I like the fact that this is is easier to to lift the the part right up off of. You don't have to worry about the dissolving the, mm -hmm. the cyanoacrylate or, or heating it to to break the bond. Uh, it just it just pops right off. I would be somewhat concerned about thinner parts. I, I don't know how thin of a, a part have you been able to to pop off without warping. Point uh, one millimeter for real. Yeah. What what were you doing at that point one mil? <laughs> Yeah, you get some thin, some thin sheet that you're that you're working on, some thin foils and stuff like that, and you can you can get some uh, some pretty thin stuff in there, and it'll pop off easily enough. Hmm. One of the problems with the with just using CA glue straight on a part, yes, you can release it through heat, but the problem is that the heat may change the part in a way that you don't want hmm. to have happen. That's, that's a problem hmm. when, especially when you're dealing with a dial where you've just spent all this time putting beautiful, bright, polished engraving on it. And then you heat the part up, and that that heat is enough to um, to change the polish level on a part. So heat is not really something that you want to bring into play. Uh, depending on what you've done with the dial, you don't necessarily want to do that. You can also end up with deformation in the metal because of the heat, uh, especially if it doesn't heat evenly. You can get some deformation, or you can affect the temper of a part if you're working with steel and you're already working on something that's been that's been hardened. 
So this is a great thing to do if you're black polishing a piece of steel that's already been hardened. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. And then also you end up with problems with acetone. Uh, so for instance, if you leave a piece of brass in acetone too long, it starts to affect the brass and you start getting a lot of um, discoloration with the brass. So this is this is sort of a nice balance in between. It gets you in and out quickly. You don't have to worry about using a wax chuck, which is the traditional way mm -hmm. of doing this sort of thing. Uh, you know, that can be a bit of a pain to do. And boil it off in mineral spirits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, the, you know, this this just has a, so many advantages. It has speed going for it. it. It has reasonable work holding. You know, you get some pretty strong work holding out of it. And uh, you get really nice flat, even, you know, work holding surfaces, which is great. Uh, and you, as I said, you can hold some really, really thin parts on here if you want to. And, uh, and it works out really well. Yeah, the hot plate I was using was a, a similar hot plate from Thermo Fisher Scientific. So sure. I, like, it's another reason I was okay leaving it for the yeah. very short, what I thought was going to be a short interruption. <laughs> so, so you can set the, the temperature. And it's usually very good about holding it at that temperature. So I wasn't at all concerned about messing up the temper because I was well right. below uh, what that steel component had been tempered at. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, I was completely caught off guard when, when I opened <laughs> that door. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I am excited to, to give this a try sometime. Yeah, and and do you see these these days? There's a lot of luthiers who are using this, especially when they're working on veneers. Mm. Uh, they're you know, let's say they're doing a a fingerboard for a guitar or something like that, and they're doing an inlay into it. This is a really convenient way of holding the fingerboard down to the bench while they're working on it, or if they're doing a some kind of a heavy level veneer uh, that they're putting on the top of the guitar and they need to do some carving in it or whatever. This is a great way again of being able to just hold it down be able to, uh, they can just put it straight on their bench if they want to. So you can hold down a thin piece of wood, which uh, otherwise you really don't have a good way of holding, and then be able to use a hand plane on it and or, you know, gouges or whatever to to shape the piece of wood and, and carve it. So it, it's being used all over the place. It's, it is a really powerful technique. And it, it's not appropriate all the time. It, you know, there, you can still quickly get to the limits of its work holding when it comes to let's say machining a piece of steel or brass or aluminum or something like that. If you're trying to make a, you know, a three quarter inch deep cut out of a piece of aluminum, this is not the way to hold it, right? You need to be, you need to be gentle. There are limitations on it. But one of the nice things with the videos that John has produced on this is that they've actually tested some of that and they've said, okay, here is a two by three inch piece block of aluminum. How hard can we push this before it releases? And, the, you know, they, they push it really hard. So it is quite remarkable. If you've got enough surface area, then you can do that. I've also seen people use vacuum chuck. I know the Breguet uses vacuum chucks on some of their engine turning equipment. And again, if you don't have that vacuum chuck built exactly right, and of course they're using the same dials over and over again, so it's, there's some advantages there. But if you don't have that vacuum chuck built exactly right, then you can also end up with deformation in the metal from the vacuum chuck. And trying to make a vacuum chuck that spins is a pain. So there's a lot of disadvantages to that sort of thing as well. So this this just has a a lot of you know a lot of conveniences when it comes to how how you can work hold and and uh, it it's certainly worth trying if you're trying to hold something small that's delicate. It's uh, it's something to give it a try. I remain curious as to how you you got that point one mil piece <laughs> off without uh, deforming it. Must have been a very very thin razor blade. Delicate touch. Uh, you know, uh, what would you do? What, what, what's the what's the I secret there? You, I can't give you all my secrets. Oh, come on. Well, I do appreciate <laughs> you sharing this one with me. Um, it, it is a, a game changer, really, for for work holding. Yeah. Especially on small flat components, yeah. like a lot of the stuff that that I end up having to recreate. 
And that's just it. A lot of jewelers, a lot of watchmakers, um, even machinists, you know, woodworkers. There are a lot of people that are listening to this and are, you know, are struggling with that kind of work holding. And this is this is one of those tricks that it will shock you the first time you use it and it will just work. And it's uh, it really is remarkable. So we'll put a link to the powder coating masking tape that I use. I get it from McMaster Car. I'm sure you can get it from other places, but McMaster Car is convenient to get it from. And you can get it in different widths. So I have some in two-inch widths and four-inch widths, depending on the size of piece that I'm working on. And it's, it's uh, again, it's really nice stuff to use. So uh, we'll make sure to put lo- links to that. And if you don't need that level of consistency in the base, the base layers that are holding this, then you can also just use regular painter's tape that you pick up at, you know, your, your local big box store and it worked really well. And if you, dear listener, happen to, to use this technique yourself, we, we'd love to hear about it. Feel free to drop us a note at hello at offhours.show or uh, reach out to us on uh, the social media platform of your choice. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at under the loop and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand. <laughs>